for me, simplicity is really just like a shortcut to like a feeling of control, you know, like what you do when you make something simple is you make people feel like they know how to do it and they are in control of something that is important to them. And over time, I think that leads to, okay, if that's where I feel in control, I'm going to be spending more of my time there. I'm going to be taking more of my action there. I'm going to be spending more of my dollars there. But in the immediate term, it's very hard to say, okay, I like took away a button. I like removed functionality and it led to, it led to something good. And so I think what helps is like having quality insight about how do people feel when they're using a product and I think that's where simplicity plays in like first in the feeling and over time it has a real impact on the doing I'd love to begin with your journey you went from Microsoft to landing your first role at Facebook, then getting into leadership and now FAIR. We'd love to hear about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, super excited to be chatting with you. I'm originally from the East Coast of the States. I was born and raised in a little mining town. And then after college, I went to Microsoft. I started in product, but actually I didn't feel like it was the right fit. And so I moved out of product really fast. And I've spent really half of my career not in product. I did a bunch of kind of comms and PR work, marketing. I took some time off. I traveled around and it was wonderful. But at some point I needed a job. <laughs> and the only place I wanted to work was Facebook. And so I convinced them to take me on as a temp in PR. And I just kind of started there and stuck around. And eventually someone hired me full time. And I got back into product over the course of just being able to, to move around Facebook and doing things that seemed really valuable and useful at the time. But started in PR, spent a lot of time in product marketing. We had a VC fund and I ran the VC fund for, for a year. Um, got loaned out to various parts of the company as we made acquisitions and started working in new domains. And then my last two jobs there, I kind of grew into head of product at Facebook ads as we were doubling our way into 50 billion a year. And then I was head of product and design at WhatsApp. And those were, it was just such an amazing and lucky like set of rides that I, I got to be on. And then about eight months ago, I came to FAIR where I'm the CPO and I've been learning entirely new things. It's been really remarkable. That's awesome. So started as a temp role all the way to the executive leadership and then worked on some iconic products. That's awesome. It's I felt really lucky. And the, like a funny thing about it is that it didn't feel like those were risks at the time. You know, taking a temporal just felt like it was the right thing to do. Like Facebook was such an amazing company. I was watching my friends use it. I was using it. People talked about it in this way where there was like a magic about it. And so I knew I just wanted to be there and it mattered less like what's the role, like what's the path, you know? And it just mattered more that I felt like if I were there and just surrounded by these amazing people and working on this amazing mission, like something good had to happen. And even if it didn't work out, like no regrets, like I would have learned so much, I would have gotten such an amazing experience that no matter what, it would be worth it. I think a lot of people can learn from that and take back because you worked at Microsoft, which is a great company. And then being able to take a temp role at Facebook, it's like kind of put your ego aside. If you see something that is really compelling, go for it, even in a, in a somewhat temp role and you can see what, what ends up happening. I mean, I think uh, I think my parents would disagree with you, you know, <laughs> it was definitely not easy for them going from, you know, a, a company that they could describe to their friends to a temporal and like sleeping on people's couches and, and just wandering around a little bit. But for me, it always just, uh, I think 
for a lot of my career, I felt like it was a problem that I didn't really know who I wanted to be when I grew up. Like, and even today, I don't think I know. Like, I'm not a person who's like, in 20 years, this is going to be where I am and I'm going to work continually to that goal. Um, and it took me a long time to realize that, like, for me, my, like, success and happiness usually just involves being happy every day and feeling like I'm adding value every day. And following that, wherever it is, is more authentic to who I am. Like, being opportunistic about seeing what's out there and then figuring out where I fit instead of feeling like I know I have a mission I'm just going to keep going toward it and it took me a long time to get comfortable with that because I felt like so many of the people I know do have that mission and like a lot of successful people talk about it and work toward it but as soon as I kind of embraced it I'm just like that's not really who I am and therefore I'm not going to be successful if I try to do that I'm going to be holding myself to an artificial thing and closing my eyes to like where I can truly add value. That was like one of the inflection points, I think, in my career. Moving on to creating product success, imagine you are a product leader, right? Like imagine you're a senior product manager, a director of a product, and you've been tasked with this overwhelming task of someone says, create a vision and strategy for your product. Stepping into the shoes of this first-time product director, you know, what tips can you give them tactically to come up with a vision and strategy that is believable, compelling, so on and so forth? Yeah. I feel like sometimes there's like a mythology around product and product visions where you feel like you have to like wear a black turtleneck and then you like go into a room by yourself and you come out and you're like, I have the vision, you know, this is exactly right. And I think one of the helpful things about spending so much of my career not in product was it just gave me an understanding of like ideas come from everywhere, you know? And so my first step when I'm thinking about a product vision is to not think of myself necessarily as the creator, but instead as the facilitator, you know, and figure out where are all of the ideas? And they come from mostly places that we think of, you know, like what does the research look like? What, do this, what does the data look like? What are the big trends? in the world, in the domain we're talking about. But I think there's also other ways that have been helpful to me. Like for instance, one thing I like to do is like run a survey to my leadership team and just say, hey, what do you think the world looks like in five years? Down to like, in five years, what percentage of our revenue will come from small businesses instead of large? And you know, you run that survey to a bunch of people, they say, how am I supposed to like, just look at the data, do the, you know, but what I found is that when you ask a bunch of smart people who have been thinking about the space, if you ask them the question they all agree, then you might as well take it as truth, you know? And then when you ask them the question and they don't agree, you know there's room to like dig in and learn and think more about that area. And so just finding ideas about what the future looks like from as many places as possible and then pulling them together, I think into something that's kind of provocative, you know, that kind of pushes the edge of what what people might be comfortable with and then socialize it. Like, see, do people feel like it's authentic? Do people feel like it's too extreme? What parts of it make sense? What do you need to walk back? And then once you know what it is, then you can write it in a way that it's appealing to the entire company. But I feel like for me, the aha moment is always when I get to a kernel that feels like, oh, okay, this is new, but it's also explanatory of how we have acted in the past and how we have tended to make decisions. And now we can package it into something that is inspiring to a lot of people. I think that's interesting because a lot of times there's this fallacy of product sense. You have it or you don't, and yeah. you're this genius. And then, totally. it, you know, and people that don't have it will feel shamed or, you know, left out. And they're like, well, I can't develop a vision. And you're saying, well, you can collect it from others. Yeah. And then can you talk about this, this aspect of you said a kernel or nugget? What is that? How do you know you've landed on one? Well, like... 
For example, when I was working at WhatsApp, I was in a research session and somebody said, oh, I don't think WhatsApp is an app. I think about it as an extension of me. It's just like a part of my arm, you know? So when people ask me what technology do I use, I don't say WhatsApp. I just say, I just use my phone and I'd communicate with people. For me, that triggered this insight of like the central metaphor for an app like WhatsApp is really just face-to-face communication. You know, it's not the desire to like learn a tool or operate in a way that is different from just two people sitting down and talking. And once you kind of imagine that, you can think, oh yeah, and that's why the way the UI works, it doesn't like pop up stuff in front of you very frequently. That's why when you're thinking about like a video call, we let you kind of join and leave video calls seamlessly because that's how you'd walk in and out of a room, you know, which is different from a bunch of different UIs we could have thought of. I think for FAIR, it can be things like we take the place of a trade show in lots of ways and we help you as a small local business marry like your understanding of your community with all the power of technology and the ability to like connect with all the brands and goods in the world that otherwise would be really hard to find. How can we reflect that in the UI and in kind of the core values we're offering? A theme that has been in your experience is really around simplifying things. I wonder if you can quantify for our audience the benefit of really simplifying experiences to their essence. Simplicity, I think, is such an overloaded term because it means different things to different people. For me, simplicity is really just like a shortcut to like a feeling of control. You know, like what you do when you make something simple is you make people feel like they know how to do it and they are in control of something that is important to them. And I think that comes through like a sense of predictability. You know, you look at something and you know, how is it going to work? What is it going to do? And I think that like a hard part about that, it's hard for it to show up like in a fast A-B test dashboard. In some ways, like in the short term, it's an intangible trade-off where it just like makes you more confident and reduces your cognitive load. And so you just feel more comfortable doing something when you feel in control. And over time, I think that leads to, okay, if that's where I feel in control, I'm gonna be spending more of my time there, I'm gonna be taking more of my action there, I'm gonna be spending more of my dollars there. But in the immediate term, it's very hard to say, okay, I like took away a button, I like removed functionality and it led to to something good. Um, And so I think what helps is like having a principle around what your trade-offs should look like there and having, in addition to quantitative insight, having qualitative insight about how do people feel when they're using a product. We have so many tools for what do people do when they're using a product, and we have kind of fewer tools about, but how does it make them feel? And I think that's where simplicity plays in, like first in the feeling, and over time, it has a real impact on the doing. You've described this decision-making framework. You call it listen, decide, document. Yeah. I mean, I think about this because I, I just moved around a lot into like new domains or new roles. And so what I was trying to figure out is like, how can I both add value to the team as fast as possible and ramp up on the space as fast as possible without making a bunch of decisions that I would have to unwind later or that would be bad because I just didn't have the context. And I think we tend to jump into like, I got to make the decisions right away. And so what worked for me was to pull back from making the decisions and instead think, how do I first 
like listen and listen so actively that I will help get to a better decision, even if I'm not the one making it right away. And then how do I document in a way that is going to add value to the team immediately? Like even just sending around notes is something that like takes burden off the team. You know, like nobody likes that part. So like if I can do that, it'll make things easier. But if I can take really good notes, I can line up next steps. I can talk about like the work streams that have to come out of it. And so kind of putting less pressure on I immediately have to solve the decision and more on how do I listen? and actively how do I like set up the next decision and then it kind of merges together somewhat more seamlessly into oh I guess I just made the decision you know and it wasn't a surprise to anyone I was able to incorporate other people's voices by learning from them and training myself on how they made decisions before I did and that's been what what has kind of worked for me right so don't lead into the decide but go into the listening yeah. and then documenting and the decision can come out of it yeah it comes naturally awesome um, you wrote a blog, a blog around this, which I loved. Uh, I think it'll be great if you can share. How do you know that your priorities are set correctly? Oh, man, I only have a disappointing answer, which is you don't. You never know whether your priorities are set correctly. That's just like the human condition is you have more things to do than you'd like to. And you can't run an A-B test on all of it, you know? So I think, I think step one is like making peace with the fact that like I will never be able to do all the things I want to do in the time and resources that I have. And some of the choices I make are probably just not going to be right. And the thing that helps me is to recognize like that's okay, that's universal, and that's just like the setup I'm working with, and then figure out, given the information I have and the amount of time I'm willing to spend, what's gonna make me feel like I made the right choice with what I had? You know, even if I like keep moving and some of the things fail, like I know some of them are gonna fail. Did I make like a pretty good choice about my overall portfolio where it was like a reasonable number of things to fail? It wasn't all of them. It wasn't like I made a bad choice out of inertia or I made a bad choice out of just like not getting information or thinking about it. But I really did just like make the best choices I could and then getting comfortable with that and moving on. You know, the, the higher that you climb, the more uncomfortable decisions that you have to make, right? And so how do you get comfortable with being wrong and making these decisions? It's in some ways like a, a pretty dark version of leadership <laughs> philosophy in my mind where I, I kind of had this vision that like you get more senior, everything gets simpler, you have more resources, you have more information, you can just like magically make these great decisions. And instead, like my personal experience is um, as you get more senior, the problems you get handed are problems that just have no solution. Like if they had a solution, someone would have solved them before they got to you. And so by the, the very nature of your role, you kind of have to put your name on suboptimal solutions. And the only thing you can choose is like, which branch of suboptimal do you put your name on? And again, I think a lot of that is just getting comfortable if that's the reality of the role, that your job isn't to make a perfect decision and tie a bow around it, but is to make a decision that is consistent with the principles that you need to be using, whether those principles are like what's going to be best for uh, a customer in three years in this segment or what's gonna be the best navigation and balancing of different stakeholder needs. Like whatever the set of principles is, really getting clear on what principles I'm using to decision make and then getting comfortable applying them. Do you, do you have an example of that in the past where there was a decision that was a little bit difficult to make, but the, then you had these principles that you decided on and you said, leading on these principles, we're gonna go this way. I mean, the most common examples are always about like resource trade-offs where people will come up and say, I have a great idea for a product we need to build. 
and they go through the entire process of this is the customer, this is like what we can do with it, this is the opportunity, and you can see the whole thing making sense. And then you look at your existing portfolio and you say, that does look really good. I appreciate the work that you've put into it. I wouldn't trade off anything we're working on for you to do that. So I apologize, but like we're going to keep working on our existing roadmap because like that's just going to get us to the right thing for our customers faster. And then when we have time, we're going to come back and look at this. It's not prioritization until it hurts. And I think like we forget that about prioritization. We want prioritization to feel like prioritization means I'm I'm only doing the good work and I'm going to take away the bad work. And that is false. Like you're already not doing the bad work. You know, like you're already who's doing work that they think is like not the right work to do. You're doing it because there's a reason. And the hard part is to stay. I'm going to take away 50% of really good work so I can double down on the 50% of great work. So I can like say yes to like bigger rocks on the most important things and know that I will feel bad that I'm not doing all this other really good stuff, you know? But that's part of it. Like, that is the conviction that I think we have to build around, like, what's most important, not just, like, what is good and nice, you know? Moving into our last section, which I think is going to be really interesting because you have a ton of writing on this and PMs. I feel there is a lack of information on this. So excited to get into managing your own success. So how can product leaders proactively accelerate their career, you know, by managing their, their career, essentially? Yeah, I mean, one thing I think about is that in product you like build all of these skills for like how to be analytical about the success of this thing of this product you know you think like who's going to use it what are the value props how are we going to gauge whether it's working well how do we decide when to pivot but then when we think about emotional things like our own careers like all of skills just go out the window, you know? Like every time I'm faced with like a career question, it feels like the rest of my career hangs in the balance, which is so surprising because when you ship a product, you know that like you're gonna do a bunch of tests, it might not work, you might have to pivot, nothing's irrevocable. And I think many of those same things are true about careers where you, you can go in thinking, okay, like here's my understanding of my goal, like here's my hypothesis of what's gonna get me there, here's the information I need to like make a judgment about it, and if it doesn't work in six months, I'll just pivot. Like this is a way of doing user research about what I like, about what the company values, about what the industry values. And it's okay for me to change my mind. It's okay for me to try something and it doesn't work because all that's just valuable information, you know? And so there's a bunch of like, pretty useful user research, which is you can talk to people who have the jobs that you think you want. And you can say, tell me what your job is like. And do I think I would like it? You know, you could say to your manager, hey, like, what would be the gaps if I stepped into your job today? What would I not be able to do as well as you do? And how do I get there? You know, like, help me find the path to get there. You could say, hey, I think this is the domain that I care about. I don't know it 100%, but let me try it for a year and I'm going to learn. Is this truly the domain I care about or not? Instead, of feeling like, okay, if I enter this domain, I'm committing to it for the rest of my life. You know, mm. like emotions are, are hard and careers are often, it's just emotional territory and we lose some of our normal skills. Whereas if we can just apply some of our normal frameworks, I think it takes the pressure off of us a little bit. It like lets the framework and skills carry some of the emotional weight. For the senior product managers, would you have guidance for, hey, you know what, you should spend X amount of time per quarter thinking about your career. Do you have any guidance or like that for them to think about? For me, it's all about 
operationalizing my time. Like, it's very easy to say I want to spend more time thinking about my career, thinking about my growth. So a few of the things that help me are like, number one, to not feel like it's a selfish thing to invest in my growth, because I think sometimes it can feel really selfish. Like I have a whole backlog of things I should be doing for my team. And even taking like 30 minutes away will make me feel like, oh, I'm letting down my team. And instead flipping that to reminding myself that me growing is a service to my team. Like we're going to be facing constantly harder and harder questions. And for me to do justice to my team and to the problem, I've got to be investing in myself. So first of all, just like centering it in the value that my investment in my growth or my skills actually does for everyone else, because then I can prioritize it. And then the second thing that really helps is, okay, like maybe just set aside like an hour every week. And for me, it's usually like a Friday afternoon because like nobody's doing work. Like half of the world is offline and asleep. Like who's to, who's trying to get me to do real work between, you know, Friday from 4 to 5 p.m.? Like nobody wants to talk to me, you know, like I could not call a meeting and have it be successful. Right. And so those kind of low pressure times, I just try to operationalize it where I block them on my calendar. And I say, you know what, I'm going to fill this time, which is otherwise kind of low utility time. I'm going to fill it with something that is good for my skill development. So so whenever I meet someone interesting, I say, hey, I'd love to talk more. How about this Friday at four? How about next Friday at four? Pick any Friday at four, like let's make it happen, you know? Or I'll say, okay, I'm gonna go pick like a thing to learn. I'm just gonna go deep on it. I'm gonna read everything I can in the internet for one hour about it. And I'm gonna come out knowing something else. Awesome, love that. I love that tactical advice, one hour a week on the, on the low, lower end. Totally, make it two hours, you know? But like just, just operationalizing and protecting it has been the most important thing for me. You wrote about uh, this thing where you said, if you see a problem, it's mine to solve. But I'm thinking, aren't there downsides of that in a sense that when you're trying to be effective, you have to focus on one thing. But if you try to solve every problem everywhere, you're diluting yourself. So what, what are your thoughts on that yeah. versus the statement that you said? I think this comes back to the thing we just talked about, which is how are you going to grow? And I think especially as you get more senior, it's just less clear what next problem you should be solving. And a lot of times, like I found myself just waiting around for someone to like tap me on the shoulder and say, I've got the problem for you. Like we've been watching you and we know <laughs> what the right problem is for you. And instead, the place I got a lot of growth was just by saying, hey, this isn't necessarily my problem to solve. You know, it's like not necessarily my problem to say, like, I think we need to have more stirring, inspirational all hands. I think we need to have forums where senior leaders can meet all the new hires and like do meet and greets with them because that's going to create more bridges between levels. Like those are really like my problems to solve. But if they're the problems that I think are most effective or like going to help us be the most effective org, why not me solving them? And I, I bring it back to it's going to be the thing that helps the company the most and is therefore worth prioritizing. Even if I have to take stuff off my plate that would otherwise be here's the three problems I have that are, I'm on right now. You know, it takes breaking some of that inertia. And then it also takes recognizing that some of my best growth is going to happen in those ways. And so if I'm if I'm going to be investing in myself and my growth, like maybe that one hour of time gets allocated to that. Like it's kind of a test drive of a whole different function or a whole different domain. But I, I definitely think it's a, it's a balance. Like you can't not do your core job. Yeah. Um, it's more about figuring out how do you layer in the things that other people might not know to assign you and say, actually, my core job is making our customers successful and making our company successful. And this is the path I see there. And I might have to trade off this thing. Is everyone comfortable with that? Like, if you think I can't trade this thing off, then let's talk. But otherwise, my understanding of what's going to make 
the customer successful is us investing in this way, and I might as well be the one to do it. You've talked about this leadership hack, upgrading yourself from an image of 1.0 to 2.0. <laughs> totally. I think that's great. I think that's so like not incremental. So can you talk a little bit more about that aspect of improving yourself and why that's beneficial? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to thinking about like all of our product skills, where sometimes you just like... You say, okay, like this product has been great for this moment. The world has changed. Our customers have changed. Devices have changed, whatever, you know, and we actually need an upgrade. I know what that looks like. Let me build toward it. And I used to have this manager who was very clear about it. And he'd always be like, eh, what time is Ami 2.0 shipping? You know, like, so I think it's already late. Like you got to stop slipping the dates on this and just upgrade. And so for me, it's helpful to think about it in those terms, like especially when you get promoted, you change jobs, your life changes, whatever. I think we tend to hold on to all the things we used to do. And we say to ourselves, okay, like I just got promoted. That means I have to do everything I used to do and all this new stuff. I'm just going to make it all work. And instead, that's not really what's needed of you in the new job. Like what's needed of you is to do a pretty different thing. So for me, having this idea of like, okay, I was doing well at that version of the job. That was the 1.0 version. Let me like acknowledge that. Let me honor it. You know, let me re remind myself of the good and bad. And let me like kind of close the chapter on that and say, okay, now I'm in a different world. Like I'm in a different job. People need different things of me. The company, the customers need different things of me. What's like the job description for that? And then what of myself overlaps with that? I have three children. So the, the places I think about this the most are like, every time I have a kid, like my understanding of what I need to be doing at home and at work has to change. There's no way for me to like do all the things I used to. I can't like, I don't necessarily need to be the one watching the kids every minute of the day. I don't necessarily need to be the one who's cooking every meal, but I need a system for like, how's childcare going to work? Like, do we do meal preps just on Sundays instead of every, like it's required something different of me every time. And it's much easier to make like a step change, close the chapter, open the new chapter, than to kind of stretch. Nope, I got to cook every day forever for just more and more kids, you know? Um, and that's been a handy permission to self. Got it. So life changes and that will get you to reevaluate other new systems that you yeah. should. Uh... And work changes. I think promos look like this. I think job changes look like this. Like That's a great analogy. Thanks for sharing that. The last question on this section, a lot of people struggle with, maybe you can help us out with some tips there is, how do you ask for feedback and genuine feedback that will make you improve? Because sometimes people don't want to say negative stuff to you. So how do you solicit stuff that's really holding you back? I had to work really hard on this because, you know, like I think most humans just have a very defensive and you don't want to hear bad stuff about you, you know, but it's like market research. Like you need to know what the people around you think of you in order to get better. Right. And if if they don't give you that, you just are lacking really important information. So I start by like one, I, I have to genuinely want the feedback. If I'm like forcing myself to ask for it, but I don't really want it and I don't really intend to take action, like that comes through, like people know, you know? So I have to get to a place in my head where I'm, I'm asking out of genuine desire to know and curiosity. And then some of the tactics that work are like, honestly, to just keep them talking. So like most people will run out of good things to say in the first five minutes. And then you just keep on asking and you keep on waiting and you just keep on saying, thank you, what else? Thank you, tell me more. And eventually they get to the stuff where they're like, well, if I had to choose one thing, it would be this thing. You're like, oh, that's gold. I never would have known that. Or you concede, once you, once you hear one of those, you concede it to other people and say, hey, I got feedback that 
I might come off as impatient sometimes. Like, is there any way that you can imagine I come off as impatient? Just help me think through this, yeah. you know? And so once you invite really specific feedback, people are far more comfortable giving it to you because, you know, you open the door directly. And then another thing that's really been helping me recently is kind of enlisting people and making me better where I, I don't just say I need feedback, I would say I'm really relying on you to tell me the context I'm missing, the places I'm going wrong, the things I don't know. And it kind of enlists them really directly in my journey and my success. And so instead of giving me feedback and feeling like they're saying something negative about me, they're giving me feedback in order to prop me up and make me more successful, you know? And that makes it a lot less uh, worrisome for them, you know? How do you see the future of product management? Are there any trends that product managers should stay abreast of? and how do we monitor future trends in product management? I mean, you know, given the, the, the trend of the day, I think generative AI is on there. Yeah. No surprises. But in my mind, like, PMs have always just tried to, to learn and take advantage of all of the tools available at the time. And so I see generative AI as a major tool, just like experimentation is a major tool, just like being able to like do market research is a major, like there's so many tools that I think we try to incorporate. What I keep coming back to is like having the judgment and embracing the judgment to use the tools effectively instead of letting the tool take over. It can be easy, and I've fallen into this trap for sure myself, to like look at a dashboard and say, hey, the numbers are going up, like let's ship it, you know? Instead of necessarily thinking like, what does the customer need? How does the numbers going up on this dashboard relate to what the customers need? Did I choose the right metric? Did I choose the right time period? Did I choose the, like, am I really using judgment to understand all of the tools and pieces of information and then making sure that it fits for the customer? I mean, this has been so fantastic. You've talked about managing your product success. You've talked about managing your career success. Some of the things that really stuck with me around were like, it's not selfish to spend time on yourself because problems are growing, you know, and you're investing in yourself is really making it better for you and your team. Upgrading your thinking from 1.0 to 2.0, that happens when there's life changes. All these tactical tips are so helpful for our audience. And we really appreciate your time here on the CPM Mastery Podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.